Uh, as a congregation, we have been looking at the book of Galatians, and now as we come to the end of chapter 5, we have begun a series of sermons on the fruit of the Spirit. In Pastor Jesse's introductory sermon, he pointed out that the fruit of the Spirit in that chapter is set in contrast with the works of the flesh. That fruit is singular, whereas the word works is plural, from which we conclude that the works of the flesh are what we would do by our own efforts. But the Holy Spirit produces fruit in us. It is one fruit with various aspects or various manifestations. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And it is not brought about by our busyness, by our efforts, by our striving. It is the Holy Spirit that gives the fruit of the Spirit to those who belong to him. And the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus Christ, who said, He, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me. Therefore, we need to look at Jesus. We need to look to Jesus to know what his fruit looks like. We see the fruit of the Spirit as we look to the portrait of Christ in the pages of the Bible. And as we look to Jesus, we are transformed into his likeness more and more each day. And that, dear friends, is the message of our two verses in Colossians 2 this day. Before we look at the passage uh, uh, particularly, I want to uh, point out real quickly that every verbal command or every verb uh, 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 in this passage, they all occur, occur in the plural. Uh, perhaps not all that obvious to those English speakers that we are, uh, but, uh, but, but you're aware of this. And just a reminder that everything that we are encouraged and even commanded to do uh, occurs not to us individually, but to all of us together. Each verb and verbal command in these two verses are found in the plural. You received, plural. Walk, plural. Rooted in, plural. Built up in, plural. Established in, plural. As you were taught, plural. And abounding in thanksgiving. The second thing I want us to perhaps be reminded of, perhaps learn, Paul didn't plant this church. Paul did not plant the church at Colossae directly, but he did indirectly through the preaching of the gospel as God's appointed missionary. But there was a man who heard the gospel preached by the name of Epaphras, and he did uh, the wonderful thing of going back to where he was from. And there he was testifying to the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Epaphras returned to Colossae to spread the good news. And yet, though Paul did not plant this particular church, so great was Paul's love for every church that even though he was personally unfamiliar with this particular church, um, his love was so deep that he labored over her. He labored over her in prayer. Look up a couple verses before our verses 6 and 7 with me. Paul said, For I want you to know, church... How great I struggle, a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for, or for all who have not seen me face to face. 
And what was the nature of his struggle? Well, when Paul and Epaphras were together again, Epaphras informed him that false teachers had found their way in to this true church, and uh, Paul struggled greatly. These false teachers were saying, all this talk of Jesus, that's, that's good, but you need more. You need to add on to your knowledge of Jesus, and you need to add on what only we can give you. This is the hidden knowledge. You need our teaching. Our teaching contains all the hidden treasures of true knowledge and understanding. And you will become spiritually enlightened. Well, when Paul heard this, he was aghast. And he struggled greatly. As I said, first in prayer, and then with pen to parchment. And we have his instruction by the Holy Spirit. For us this day, 2,000 years later. Paul said, no! The knowledge of God's mystery is the knowledge of Jesus Christ. It is Christ, verse 3, if you're still looking above our passage. It is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And Christ has been revealed. What formerly was hidden, now has been Revealed. In order to, verse 2, give us full assurance. In order to reach all the mysteries of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. Chapter 1, what is this mystery? Verse 26 at the end of chapter 1. The mystery hidden for ages and generations has now been revealed to his saints. This mystery, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Friends, the mystery begins and it continues and it ends with Christ Jesus. It was Jesus himself who declared, I thank you, Father, the Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things, hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them unto little children. So as we then come to verses 6 and 7, recognizing that these two verses also represent a major transition in the letter to the Colossians. I ask, uh, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so I ask, how did you receive Christ Jesus the Lord? Well, let's at this point listen to the words of the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, who says this, The life of faith is represented as receiving. It is one... An act which implies the very opposite of anything like merit or anything like earning. It is simply the acceptance of a gift. As the earth drinks in the rain and the sea receives the streams, as the night accepts the light from the stars, so we, giving nothing, partake freely of the grace of God. Saints are not, by nature, wells or streams. They are but cisterns into which the living water flows. They are empty vessels into which the Lord pours his salvation. Second thing, how did we receive Christ Jesus the Lord? When one receives Christ by faith, Jesus becomes real to him. While we are without faith, Jesus is a mere name to us. A person who lived a long while ago, so long ago that his life is merely a history lesson to us now. But by an act of faith, by receiving Christ Jesus, 
the Lord. He becomes for us the real person that he is in the consciousness of the heart. No longer merely an aim. Now the Lord, the Savior, the friend for sinners. But three, receiving also means taking hold of. The thing which I receive becomes my own. I appropriate it to myself, that which is given. And when I receive Jesus, he becomes my Savior. My Savior, so mine that neither death nor life nor anything else in all of creation will be able to rob me of him or separate me from his love. All this, to receive Christ, one to take him as God's free gift, two, to have him in my heart, and three, to appropriate him as mine. Salvation may be described as the blind receiving sight, the deaf receiving hearing, the dead receiving life. But, Spurgeon concludes, we've not only received his blessings, we have received Christ Jesus himself. It is true that he gave us the life from the dead and pardon from sin and imputed righteousness. These are all precious things, but we are not content with them. We have received Christ himself. The Son of God has been poured into our hearts, and what a heartful Christ Jesus must be, for heaven itself cannot contain him. We received Christ Jesus. And just as we receive Christ Jesus, moreover, we receive Christ Jesus, the Lord. We received him as Lord. We love him. And loving him, we listen to his voice. And listening to his voice, we do what he commands. Little children in this church, this is what daddy and mommy and the elders of the church especially Elder Aaron Hook, and we all are teaching you to learn from the Bible. The first thing you're asked is, who made you? You know the answer, God. And then we ask, what else did God make? Well, God made all things. Very good. Why, children, did God make you in all things? For his own glory. Yes. And how can you glorify God? Remember, by loving him and doing what he commands. And I just can't stop right there. Sorry, I'm into my child mode. Why should you glorify God? Remember, because he loves me and he takes care of me. That is right, child. At this point, we might hear the words of our Savior in Luke chapter 6. Uh, just one verse now, more on this section later. Our Savior said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not the things that I say? Uh, the rest of that sentence, just as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so, so, so this. Walk in him. Walking is a metaphor for the entirety of the Christian life as we journey from here to there, to the world to come. It's a metaphor. Now, it is true that occasionally there is the metaphor of running. We think of Hebrews, run with endurance, the race set before us. But by far and away, largely, uh, the far more common is to walk. We walk for better. Genesis 5, Enoch walked with God, and he was not. 
for the Lord took him. Genesis chapter 6, and Noah walked with God. To Abraham, the Lord says, I am the Lord God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. For better or for worse, you will remember that the godly servant and the prophet Samuel, uh, the elders came and said to him, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. But they have turned aside after gain. They have taken bribes and they have perverted justice. For better or for worse, walk is a metaphor, metaphor of life. For the Christian life, walking with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, friends, I feel like there should be a little bit of a disclaimer. I really don't do this very often. Uh, might be the first time I've done it here at Providence, at least in my new call. So don't get mad at me. But, um, but I, one of the things I love about the Mexican culture uh, and her language are the many, many uh, sayings uh, in the country of Mexico. And one of the most popular sayings, if we have Spanish speakers here, when I start it, you will lip sync the end of it. It says this, Dime con quien andas y te diré quien eres. Tell me who you walk with and I will tell you who you are. Teenagers, hear me in this. Paul says, well, actually, the Holy Spirit through Paul says very clearly, like with an emphasis underneath, do not be deceived, for bad company ruins good morals. So as we walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, the more we want to walk in the company of believers and fellow believers, the more we want to avoid bad company. Because we realize that they might speak in very flattering and glowing terms. They oppose Jesus Christ. And sooner or later, we will see that they oppose us too. Do not walk in bad company. I don't even like bad company, their music, and the songs that they did. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks in the counsel of the way, who, does, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but delights in the word of Christ, the law of the Lord, meditates day and night. Now, a couple things quickly about walking. Three, not two. One, it is safer to walk. It is safer. I spent the summers of my college years, and I knew that as soon as I returned home from college to my parents' house, if I got home on a Friday, I would want to be working on a Saturday. Well, and I didn't want to spend time looking for a job. So what I did was I got my certification to serve in this town in New Jersey as a lifeguard. And I was able to get a job in the four summers after the academic year, and, uh, but it was at a municipal pool. And you know what the lifeguard does at the municipal pool uh, in, in the cities around our country? He stands there with a whistle. He blows the whistle constantly, innumerable times, and he yells out, walk! About all, that's about all he does. And that's because it's safer to walk with slippery feet on wet concrete. I was going crazy using the whistle and yelling out, walk! There was one occasion where um, I saw a toddler who was kind of like toddling, 
and around the edge of the pool, and he fell into the deep end. So I quickly uh, came down off my perch, dove in the water, grabbed him under the arms, lifted him up, put him, sat him on the side of the pool. At which time the mom realized what was going on, and that was her, it was her boy. And she said to me, oh, thank you, thank you. And I said to her, no, thank you. It gave me something to do other than blowing my whistle and calling walk. It's safer in the Christian life because we walk in God's presence. Isaiah 43, when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. Psalm 23, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod, your staff, they comfort me. The second reason is that walking, uh, is it, you get to slow down. And when slowing down, walking, you can be more circumspect. You get to enjoy the walk. It was a teacher at Princeton uh, Seminary, uh, who, uh, uh, Dr. J. Gresham Machen, who wrote a, a, a wonderful little essay entitled Mountains and Why We Love Them. Uh, you might want to Google that and, and look it up. It's really short. It's really cool. Machen, Dr. Machen, wrote these words. There is one curious thing about the means of locomotion. The slower we move, the closer we are to nature. And the closer we are to nature, the more real thrill it gives us. The only way to have the slightest inkling of what a mountain is, is to walk it or to climb it. Thirdly, by walking, you can persevere. If you're like me, I don't persevere very long when I run. But with walking, you and I can persevere. <clears throat> I remember when I was a young, a young child, a young boy, maybe six or seven years old, and contrary to public opinion, that was not in the 1800s. I was walking with my dad, just my dad and me. I, I loved those moments. And uh, nevertheless, being a six-year-old, uh, I said, Dad, how far are we walking? Uh, do we have to walk all the way down this path, all the way to that hill over, the, over there? And he said, well, yes, that's, that's our destination. And immediately my shoulders drooped and my feet started to drag. And I said, I'll never make it. That is just too far. And my dad did something right there and right then, which was very wise. And I didn't even take notice. He changed the conversation. He started asking me about the things that interest me. No doubt things like slugs and bugs and chocolate candy. And we're walking, he's asking me, and I'm telling all this stuff to my dad. And then we, we got further on down the road, of course, and my father said, stop, Dave, right here, and turn around. I did. And he said, you see that hill way back there? I said, yeah. And he said, that's where we stood when you said to me, I'll never make it. And here we are. Here we are. Walking, walking with Jesus, and you can, and you will persevere. As you walk in him, you will become, and this is our second point this morning, rooted in him. The ambulatory becomes stationary. Uh, continue, uh, or so, walk in him. Rooted in him. Uh, my wife, Jane, and I, when we moved to Fallbrook, California, um, I 
have tried, so far unsuccessfully, to plant fruit trees. It seems that every time I plant a small tree, the gophers say to themselves, oh look, dessert. The tender roots of the newly planted tree are no match for these little varmints who live underground. And you know why they live underground? Because they're cowards. (laughs) But the point here is that the tree struggles ever to become established because there is something constantly nibbling at the roots. The words of Jeremiah, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream, and he does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and is not anxious in the year of the drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Rooted in him, Paul says. And then he switches metaphors mid-sentence. Did you note that? Rooted in him, but built up in him, or actually more literally, just to make the point that this is Christ's work through his Holy Spirit in you, it's in the passive voice. Having been rooted in him and being built up in him. Jesus Christ is the soil. Jesus Christ is is the foundation. Now, while it's true that there's a quick switch uh, in, in, in a couple of words within one sentence, you do see, do you not, how they are related. Unlike the foundation, um, it, the root system provides nutrients so that the tree will grow and it will produce fruit. But like the root system, the foundation is also unseen and provides stability to that building, be it a single-story house or a skyscraper. Rooted in him, having been rooted in him, built up in him, being built up in him. And here we need to hear the rest of Luke chapter 6. I read to you verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not the things that I say? Verse 47. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the stream broke against that house, it could not shake it because he had been well built. We are built upon him. We are built up in him. True, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. So it is important to see Christ as the chief cornerstone the one of whom it is written, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone as a sure, uh, a sure foundation. And yet we come to see uh, that when the scripture speaks in these terms, though we come to Jesus individually, nevertheless, this is not to be understood as a purely individual relationship. You know, a personal relationship with your own personal Jesus. Now, remember, we said at the beginning that all of the commands in here are in the plural. You don't find one in the singular. Jesus is indeed the foundation. But without the apostolic testimony, we never would have received the word of Christ. And therefore, we never would have received Christ, the Lord. Jesus is the foundation in relation to the apostles who believed in him and were chosen by him to be his emissaries, to be his ambassadors, for the writing down of scripture and the preaching of the gospel to the ends of the earth. 
In a corollary text in the book of Ephesians, we read in chapter 2, So then, you are no longer strangers, no longer aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. And as you do this, you are being established in the faith. Established in the faith just as you were taught. So you see how it is that I read recently somewhere, social media or something, uh, the question was, um, can, can, can one become a Christian and never... Um, I think it said, can one become a Christian and never join a church? Can one become a Christian and never have a relationship with the church? And the answer was a good one. I liked it. Yes, one can, I said it wrong in the beginning, one can become a Christian and not have a relationship to the church, but not for long. But not for long. You see, we read in Acts chapter, uh, chapter 2 that the Christians, the believers, devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Which means, brothers and sisters, that what we are doing here today and what we do every single Lord's Day is the exact um, fulfillment of all that we are considering today. Established in the faith just as you were taught. We too devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. We are being knit together in love more and more. On those occasions when we recite the Nicene Creed regularly throughout the year, we say this at its end, and I believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. In the life of Christ, walking in him, being rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, as we were taught, this is the true life. This is the new life. This is the abundant life. And it is a life of thanksgiving. Our text ends. And abounding in thanksgiving. Friends, we are by nature forgetful when it comes to giving thanks. That is the harsh reality that I have learned of myself over these years. We are a forgetful people. It is said that God gives and forgives Man gets and forgets. So often we simply fail to give thanks, or if we do give thanks, it is only in certain circumstances, when things go our way. We want what we want when we want it, and when we get it, when everything goes our way, then we are thankful. But our text says, abounding in thanksgiving. That is, we are told to acknowledge gratefully the sovereign hand of an all-powerful God, a loving Heavenly Father, and to receive all things that come our way, all circumstances in this life, with a quiet, submissive, trusting, and grateful heart. Acknowledging that, which is said in a beautiful catechism called the Heidelberg Catechism, question number 27. It tells us our forefathers went to the scriptures to come to hammer out a beautiful definition 
from the Bible for the name of our church. Our church is called Providence. And the question is, what is Providence? And the answer, God's Providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs, governs them that leaf and blade and rain and drought and fruitful and barren years and food and drink and health and sickness and riches and poverty, yea, all things come not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. We are to praise God from whom all blessings flow, even the blessing of a severe trial. Not because of the trial, but in the midst of the trial. Our Lord rebukes the thankless heart with two penetrating questions. Weren't there ten lepers who were cleansed? Where are the nine? Children, your parents teach you to say thank you as a matter of course and as a matter of courtesy. And they are teaching you a very, very important lesson. They are teaching you that thankfulness should be expressed. It should be spoken. We say thank you to the person who gives us something, a gift, or an act of kindness. And in thanking that person, we are pleasing God. Because that person is the one by whom God has blessed us. So we express our gratitude both to the person and to the Lord God by saying thank you. Because God is the giver of every gift. He's the giver of every good and perfect gift. And in saying thank you to others, you are saying thank you to God himself. But more than just saying thank you, a truly grateful heart wants not only to speak, it wants to act. The grateful heart, the heart that is abounding in thanksgiving, is a generous heart. Having received, it wants to give in return. Paul asks us, what do you have that you didn't receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And you received it on loan. It is a talent to be received, knowing that it will be returned to the giver. It is to be invested. It is to be returned with interest. And the interest and, and, and the growth and the gain of the gift given on loan is the glory of the Savior, Jesus Christ. Well then, what are we to make of this text? I assure you that I ever thought when I was 19 years old, blowing my whistle all the day long and yelling out, Walk! That I ever thought I would be in a pulpit years later saying to you all, Walk! in him, rooted in and built up in him, strengthened in the faith together as you were taught, and abounding in thanksgiving. And do remember, as you walk together as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is there with you. He goes before you, he is beside you, he follows up after you, and he will guide you all of your days. Remember these words. These are all precious things that he gives us. But we are not content with the things he gives us. He gives us himself. 
And that is who we want. As you walk it with him, you'll be singing. And he will be guiding you. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but you are mighty. Hold me with your powerful hand. Bread of heaven, bread of heaven, feed me until I want no more. Feed me until I want no more. And you know when that day will be? When you are seated at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Pray with me.